I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 12. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, as it is written. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge your, the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Let's be more emphatic. And the whole church said, Amen. Thank you, Callan. Appreciate that reading very much. We have been listening. Uh, we sang just a moment ago uh, ancient words that are, that are given for us and, and intended to change our lives in a very powerful sort of way. And we've been listening to how the text, how the Bible, how God's Word speaks to us and answers the question over and over again in reality, why give? Last week we answered that question of why give with the, the affirmation of we love God. God engages in relationship with us and loves us in such a powerful way. It gives us this opportunity to make every response of our life to Him about how much we love Him. Whether that again is the moral or ethical decisions we make. We don't make those because somehow or another we're trying to avoid some sort of punishment. God calls us in the Spirit... Romans chapter 8, God calls us in the Spirit to not make decisions based on somehow we're, we're legalistically checking boxes or avoiding punishment, but instead we respond with ethical, moral, godly living, living that reflects that God has created us and we are His image bearers. We respond in that way because of how much we love God, amen? And our love can motivate us in so much more powerful a way than our fear or somehow or another our, our legalistic checking of boxes. Whenever we get into a legalistic mode, just like the Pharisees, we can either work ourselves into a place where we're kind of trying to make rules that God didn't intend rules to be made for, or we can find rules that circumvent the heart of what God wants us to be about. But when our lives reflect that we're living because we love Him, then it's a powerful witness to who God is. And as a part of our total life, our giving, why do we give? We give because we love God. Not because we're trying to check some box. Not because we're sort of uh, trying to, to avoid some sort of punishment or, or even the idea that we would buy our way into God's good graces. No, no, no. God's good grace has come to us, amen? And we want to say how much we love God, just as God has from the beginning said over and over again how much He loves us. So last week we said we love God. When we started the series, we particularly emphasized what the text says over and over again about the fact that we trust God. 
we began this series by saying that we trust God. And again, the principle that we see laid out particularly in those first books of the Bible, from Genesis through Deuteronomy, we have this, this message over and over again of what we're to bring to God is going to be our first fruits. And that's not just about the primacy of God, but it's about the idea that we're going to trust God with the rest. In other words, that God will produce enough after we give him the very first of what we harvest or what comes to us. He's still going to take care of us with what remains. And in reality, his promise, again, it begins very early in Genesis. It carries through just as they're about to go into the promised land. And then those, those kind of closing words from Malachi where God says, Put me to the test. Bring in your gifts and see if I don't open up heaven. And if I don't thwart the effort of anybody who wants to tear you down, he says, trust me. Trust me. Give in such a way that you're saying how much you trust me. Today, though, we may be looking at what I'm going to call the most transformative response, the most transformative response of how we are to be giving back to God. I'm going to take you a kind of a weird place to start this process. But if you've been around and heard my preaching long enough, you're used to weird places for our point. Somebody say? Okay, all right. One of the most mysterious is passage in the first five books, what we call the law or the Torah, the first five books of Moses, is found in Genesis chapter 14. This is an illustration from an old English uh, book that was the first actually six books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua were included in this old English translation. All the way back in 10, about 1075 is when this would have been constructed. It's kind of interesting because they all look like Anglo-Saxon warriors, don't they? Soldiers and things like that. And of course, they have to be sure that we have plenty of blood in it and things like that. But this is specifically for this section of chapter 14. You see the crown kind of in the bottom, bottom just off of the, to the left there. There's a crown of one of the fighters. This is the story probably you're familiar with. You're familiar with it particularly because it's weird and mysterious. We don't know where it's coming from. But Abraham is living now in Canaan. Uh, Lot is living in a place called Sodom. And there is a group of kings uh, that, that seem to... It's kind of hard to put exactly the geography together. But there seems to be a group of kings that are kind of all over that area. And they've sort of been in charge for a long time. And the king of the city of Sodom and several other kings decide they don't like him being in charge. So they're going to go out and make war against Four kings versus five kings. Who's going to win is the question. The five kings wind up losing. The five kings, which is who the king of Sodom is leading, Sodom is leading and they lose that fight. And, and in the process of losing that fight, uh, the, 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 the other group of kings take possession of everything that they've got. And you kind of need to realize that the idea of somebody plundering everything you got is not just the idea of them taking what you have. It's about the idea of actually killing your city, your what, what you have, because if you don't have anything to live off of as you move forward, there's, there's no reason for the city to continue to exist. So it is a powerful military victory, and it puts them even more in charge. They just made one critical mistake. They decided to take Abraham's nephew, Lot, as part of the 
the victory spoils. They took Lot and his family with them. And Abraham heard about it, and he's not having any of it. It is a unique passage because it's the only place that Abraham becomes this warrior, a military, a mighty military man, because he is going to, and again, notice, the five kings were defeated by the four kings, but Abram, who's not a king at all, and his, just kind of the guys that he assembles around him, his friends and neighbors, and they're what they call trained men, your translation may have something different, go out against these, these powerful kings who've just won a great victory, and he with Tell me why Genesis puts 318. I don't know if Abram's one of the 318 or if Abraham, Abram makes 319. But bottom line is, his little group of guys split forces and they're able to rout the other guys, completely defeat them, drive them, it says, as far as Damascus, which, by the way, is a really long way. So he, got, he, he didn't just beat them, he whipped them, right? Got the picture. Okay. It is a unique military action for this wanderer. But it also reflects, and again, God has begun this promise, follow me and I'll care for you, that he is already a man of great wealth, even though a nomad and not really owning any land, nothing that belongs to him in the sense of a tangible sense other than the tents that he lives in and the flocks that he carries around him. He still has great wealth and influence and in this region already. And maybe above all else, we're starting to recognize that God is going to be with him in what he's about. Let's pick up the reading of the climax of this, again, what I would call a mysterious story. I think you'll hear the mysterious part before we're done. Genesis 14, starting with verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Ketelamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. And King Melchizedek, somebody we haven't heard of. He's not one of the guys who went to fight. He's not one of the bad guys. He's not gone with the other group. The king of Melchizedek of Salem, Salem is an early form of Jerusalem. It's going to get repeated in the Psalms. It's, uh, it seems to be where that's from. And so it connects to uh, the people who are reading this in reality where they understand God's temple to be and those kinds of things. And King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now you need to know a couple of things here. First of all, we're, we're, we're um, creating a contrast here between the king of Sodom, who previously in chapter 13, we've already talked about Lot went to live there and all kinds of bad things go on there. And yet, big surprise, this place where bad things go on, they also consider themselves to be very wealthy. The king of Salem comes out, and he's being contrasted with the king of Sodom. He comes to greet Abram with hospitality. He brings bread and wine. The king of Sodom sort of comes out and says, I'm large and in charge. Aren't you glad to be coming back to me? Uh, at least I think that's what we're supposed to be gleaning from the way the story is told. Also, God Most High, real important statement to look at. Very unusual construction. It'll get used in some other places. It oftentimes, though, as opposed to God Most High, it would be the Lord who is Most High. And you're going to see how Abraham's going to be sure and say, 
I don't know who exactly you're worshiping, but I want to be sure you know that I, I have the God that has called me, and I want to be tied into that. So Melchizedek comes out. He welcomes Abram with this hospitality. And then he blesses him and says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, maker of heaven and earth. And this should sound fairly similar to what God has already done with Abraham. And continues, and blessed be God most high. He's already recognizing, recognizing this relationship that God belong, that Abram belongs and is following God and that God is blessing Abram. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And one of the weirdest lines in all of the Torah because immediately Abram turns around and gives to Melchizedek king of Salem, gave him one-tenth of everything. Be sure you understand. It's important that we note that Abram is giving to Salem, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, and not to the king of Sodom. That'll continue, and he expresses it in, in further detail. Then the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but you take the goods yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, and again, he's already given to the king of Salem, who has recognized that God Most High is the one who has empowered Abraham to win military victories that groups of kings, five kings put together, couldn't accomplish. Abram has gone out with his nomadic fighting men and been able to win a battle. He doesn't, he says particularly, I have sworn, and now here comes this interesting wording, not to God most high, but to the Lord, the one who spoke to me before I came here, the one that continues to speak to me, the Lord most high. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And I don't know whether he's trying to say a different one or if he's saying we're sort of in the same same bat, uh, same belief together we're recognizing the same God that I would not take from you king of Sodom a thread or a sandal or anything that is yours evil king of Sodom so that you evil king of Sodom might never say I am the one from my evil motives and my evil actions I am the one who has made Abram rich if anybody recognizes how Abram powerfully is able to win military battles and again is able to achieve uh, successes even as a wanderer to be well known and established in this area. It's not because some local king took care of him. It is because the Lord God Most High took care of him. Verse 24 continuing, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. And so he had some guys who... who came around him, his neighbors that went with him. And he says, you know what, they should get their share of the plunder, but I don't want any part of it because I don't want to be associated with your wrongdoings, king of Sodom. And what I mostly want to be sure is that you know that I am thankful to and my response of gratitude is the idea that I'm going to give 10% of what we've got here to the king of Salem, Jerusalem, Melchizedek, priest of God Most High, 
that Abraham says and the way that he puts this together is the same God that has called me and who I am following and going to give my life to. God, note, Abram's response is very clear. God always gives first. In Melchizedek's blessing, blessed be God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed, sorry, blessed be Abram, who, who is by God most high, and blessed be God most high, who is taking care of Abram. God is the one who gives first. Abram's gift to Melchizedek is a response for what God has already done. It is not a response to Sodom's wealth. Oh, great king of Sodom, you're the one who's large and in charge. I want to be sure I'm indebted to you. In reality, even the language of the blessing says that he recognizes Melchizedek as someone who is able to bless him. It is always a superior in this culture that does the blessing. And Abraham says, I want to submit to that because he seems to be submitted to the God that I'm following. It is not Sodom's wealth, but God's blessing that has caused Abraham to go. He didn't go rescue Lot and win this great victory because he thought, the king of Sodom will take care of me and give me lots of good, uh, good money and wealth. Instead, he says, it's because of God's blessing that that's happened. And so, what is this transformative answer to the question of why we give? The transformative question, answer, most transformative answer, I believe, is because we are thankful to God. Somebody say amen. We are thankful to God. You see, an attitude of thanksgiving underlies, to a certain extent, the greatest thing that we can give to our children if they're going to love God. In Romans chapter 1, Paul lays out this argument that, that God is to be known, and we just read from Psalm 19. The heavens and all of creation are constantly proclaiming God's glory, and so it is that people who haven't even read the law are people who still know God because they can see Him in what's created around them. And then he continues the argument just one step further. Having known God, they chose not to honor or glorify God, and they chose not to give Him thanks. To recognize that there was someone greater than them who has put all of these things in motion around them, that the most elemental elemental response we have to God is always about the idea of thankfulness, gratitude. And he says, because they didn't give thanks to God, even though maybe they don't know him as Yahweh, maybe they would just say, God most high, the God who created all this, whatever it may be, because they didn't, their minds are darkened. And he goes on to explain that everything's broken in the world is largely because they choose not to give thanks to God. Moms and dads, we want to sing Jesus loves me to our children while they're still in the womb. Amen? It's a good thing to do. Kind of get down there close and sing it nice and calm and all those kinds of things. And, and by the way, I'm fairly certain that in the womb it does not matter whether we're on pitch or off pitch or in tune or not. We are incredibly delivering a great message. But that baby comes out of the womb and it begins to grow. And from very, very early on, we have this opportunity to say, be thankful, be grateful.
as a dad, I considered it a, a major function that I had in my household, particularly when the children were young. And again, mom's doing the majority of taking care of them and all that kind of stuff. I'm coming alongside doing my best. But what I could do was when mom did something to help them and benefit them and they were ungrateful, the wrath of not God, but the wrath of Alan was coming down, which I hope they saw as a byproduct of the wrath of God, right? They needed to know that we were going to be thankful. When we interacted with people in the community, I wanted to model thankfulness and gratitude to people so that they would follow in those footsteps. I wanted them to receive gifts from different people and make sure, did you say, have you said, be sure you say, and, it, and it's not that this comes necessarily naturally, but we get to enforce it to them over and over and over again. Did you say thank you? Yeah, but I don't like it. It's, it's this crazy thing, and I'm not going to do anything. I don't care. Did they take the time to give it to you? Yes, then you will say thank you. Because that builds in a life. It builds in a life that I appreciate what others do for me. And the more that we build that appreciation, the more we're able to say over and over again, look what God has done. Aren't we thankful? And that that gets bigger the longer we live our life. Amen? As a teenager, you kind of have a sense, I'm ready to give my life to God, and I, and, and I recognize all He's done for me, and I want to say thanks to Him. Maybe, maybe that's in the waters of baptism. They want to say, I want to say thanks for what He's done, and I want to be grateful for what He's done. But it continues to grow. All you have to do is be an adult for a little while and guess what you're going to do? You're going to make bigger mistakes. It's kind of crazy how that goes. And what we discover if we read the text and if we're part of a Christian community that's living out the love of God is that people love and care for us anyway. Mercy and grace. And we become even more grateful. It is a powerfully transformative act to fall back into to yearn for a greater and greater level of gratitude and thankfulness. And therefore, when we give because we're thankful, it participates in that transformation in our life. Again, you can be, and again, sorry for this example, but you can be like the Pharisees, who Jesus is real clear to say, Man, you give a tenth of everything. You, you get the smallest little seeds in your garden and you give a tenth of those things. And he says, but you've missed. You've missed the larger aspects of the law. And in many ways, that's the idea of love and that's the idea of gratitude. You instead have relied on this idea of there's some sort of checkbox, this idea that I can fulfill the law in and of myself. And so God ought to be thankful for me. As opposed to a constant awareness of how thankful I am that God's rich gifts that he bestows into my life, particularly, particularly in the gospel of Jesus Christ, can never be repaid by any monetary figure. Amen? We can go back to the first week of this series and we met that young man where Jesus said, sell everything you've got. And you can sell everything you've got and give it away. And guess what? You still have not paid for what Jesus has done. Somebody please say, 
Amen. And so it is that we can be people who can be checking boxes. We can somehow or another say, well, God says I have to. Or we can say, I am thankful for how much God has done for me. I love God so much and I trust Him. And my giving steps into those things. And in those things, He transforms our lives more and more into what He wants us to be. Amen? I want you to just hear. We're going to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. By the way, if you look at the New Testament, other than Jesus' general kind of very very general and broad kind of statements of be givers instead of those who take, which is a constant lesson that he's speaking. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is one of the most seminal passages. It needs to be read through. If you're going through the process of discerning what you're going to be giving to church this year and every year, this is one of the main passages you need to go back to. Yes, you're right. Paul is particularly referring, specifically referring to the collection that's going on among the churches in, in Asia and Macedonia and, and now here in Greece is going on to support people who are in Jerusalem who are under real severe economic distress. But if we read it, we see principles that could, should point us toward how our heart needs to be turned to God. And what you'll notice is, is he's thankful for their gifts. And he says that your giving produces thankfulness to God. And in being thankful to God, people are more inclined to give. So let's read. Starting, I'm going to pick up in 11, which overlaps a little bit with where Callan read. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity. Be sure you understand that when Paul says you'll be enriched, Paul's economy is no longer based on the Roman, Greco-Roman economy of give me more money and give me more political influence. Paul's economy is based on God's kingdom economy, amen, which is largely centered in the resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit. Transformation. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity. And your generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God, through us, we're going to deliver it. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Continuing in verse 13. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God. Now, this is, becomes real critical here. The testing of this ministry. For Paul, there was this critical test. In the kingdom of God, as he understood it at that time, in the power of the gospel to transform the world at that time, was this critical awareness that this gift from the Greek, Gentile churches to the Jewish Christians and churches was going to be critical in folding these two people groups together to make a great witness for the gospel. So he says... Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify your, by your obedience to the confession of the gospel and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others. Hear how he ties those two things together? Have you been redeemed by the blood of Jesus? 
Have you participated in this new gospel that says God's Spirit is going to be poured out on all those who have their faith in Jesus? If you are a recipient of that, there is a natural process that you will share with others. And in this context, share of your finances. Sharing with them and with all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given you. And he finishes with this. Not thanks be to you because of your incredible gifts. But thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We give because we are thankful to God. Thankfulness produces giving. And giving produces thankfulness. Isn't it amazing? I, I would encourage you to, to inquire of Christians who maybe are older than you or who have been in it longer. Because I think what you'll discover is if they have decided in their life that they're going to get involved in this idea of joyful, generous giving, it becomes an incredible cycle. Giving doesn't make you resent what you've lost. Giving makes you more grateful for what you have. Amen? At least giving from a heart of love and trust and thankfulness. And as you dialogue with them, or, or maybe as you compare notes and say, I, I wish my giving reflected this a little bit more, then move the center in the heart of your giving. Do I trust God? How much do I trust God? How much do I love God? And how much do I want to say thank you to God? And when that happens, it produces this powerful transformative cycle of more thanksgiving, which makes us happier to give, more, more joyful, more cheerful givers. So how can we be people who are letting thankfulness shape our giving back to God? Notice that there's, this is a little bit given, different. It's not that our giving shapes our love or our trust for God, but how our thankfulness needs to affect our giving back to God. First of all, go through these very quickly. Making the primacy of God the principle of giving back to God first. Who is the first giver? God is the first giver. And whenever we put God in the first slot, and whenever we make our giving conform to that idea, the, the person who has given me the most in my life is God, then the, most, the person I want to give the most to is giving back to God. This is what we see reflected in first fruits. And it is because I recognize that the person I want to say thank you to, the most person I love the most, the person I trust the most is God, and therefore I want to give back to God first. Secondly, our thankfulness is shaped by our giving in letting our gratitude drive our generosity and joy in giving. Again, I've already said this in the lesson, but I want to say it one more time. If all you're giving for is to check a box then you haven't, you're not going to receive the transformative power that's available. You're probably not going to find the joy in it that God wants for you. God doesn't want you to, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, don't give under compulsion, but be cheerful givers. And to be cheerful givers, it's got to come out of that gratitude. And finally, Letting thanksgiving shape our giving is about being transformed 
by our joyful giving to be even more thankful. There's nothing earth-shattering here, is there? It continues the process of saying, if I'm going to be generous with God, then it will build not a sense of what, I've, what I'm lacking or what I don't have because of what I've given. It will build a great sense that God is doing even more and I have the opportunity to be even more thankful. And so we join Paul in saying thanks be to God for his incredible gift. And I have to ask myself every day, does my life express this powerful sentiment? Everything that I do, amen? Does your life say thanks be to God for his indescribable gift? If you can't say that that's how you're living and it's why you're, you're doing what you do for God, whatever it may be, then maybe you need to come to God and say, God, I, I need to turn into gratitude. I, I want my life to, to be a light. I want it to be this salt influence because people see in everything that I do how thankful I am to you. We're going to sing a song, just a second. We call it our invitation song. I invite you wherever you are, here in this room or at home, to say, does my life reflect the sentiment of thanks be to God for his indescribable gift? And if you can't answer that question, yes, or I want more of that, let's start a conversation. You can come forward and ask for prayers right here and right now. You can join us online by texting the number that you see on the screen. Because there may be very few things that are more important in what God wants to do in your life than saying, I'm living to say thank you to God. Terry, why don't you come lead us in song? All to Jesus I